All right, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken, and I'm so glad to be joined today by Dr. David De Silva. Um, Dr. De Silva, how are you this morning? I am very well, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I um, just for my audience, why I'm talking with Dr. De Silva this morning. I uh, I started this United Methodist centered podcast a while back, and I tried to figure out who online. Um, it has a social media presence that is also United Methodist. How big is this sphere? And Dr. De Silva was one of those voices. Um, he started a YouTube channel just uh, putting some of his academic material up, and then I saw on a Facebook post, you didn't even realize how much the channel was growing until you checked in, and, and uh, you're big enough to be monetized. You have a lot of people who, who know and trust you. You're a, <laughs> a, you're a faculty at Ashland Theological Seminary, which is in Ohio, but I think you live in Florida. Is that right? It is. I have taught entirely online since wow. 2014. Since 2014. Okay, so you're very engaged in the online world. You're very comfortable and capable in that world where so many people are uh, not at all capable, and that's that's really been to your credit. Um, the, one of the other things I noticed about you as I started paying more attention to you is you're also an excellent uh, minister um, you're an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, but you also do ministry on Facebook. Whether or not you see it that way, you and my good friend James Lambert are two of the most gifted, most patient people on Facebook to try and make a, a good case for uh, what I would recognize as classical, traditional Christian faith to um, our more... Um, uh, uh, adventuresome brothers and sisters. Yeah, adventurous. <laughs> I was I was going to say cultured despisers. Um, no. You you just have a lot more patience and uh, grace with folks that that scoff at people like no. me. And uh, so I've I've as I've been watching you, um, I decided I needed to reach out to Doctor De Silva to say, hey, we got similar YouTube followings. Let's get together and see if I can't learn from you. And and um, you know, at this point on Plain Spoken, I'm just so happy to have. As many people um, tuned in as are, and I think Dr. De Silva's is a voice that we could and should learn a lot from. And um, so I reached out to Dr. De Silva, and it's a very busy time for him, um, but he was willing to, to sit down with me. And so I, I just want to thank you, Dr. De Silva, for taking the time. My pleasure. Yeah. Let me, um, uh, I, I'll, I'll give a brief overview of who you are, and then you fill in the blanks as is important for people who watch this. Um, I, I uh, enjoyed watching your interview with Odell Horn, of course, of, of North Georgia. He did an interview with you on the Apocrypha and Ancient Greek Culture, and, and that was fabulous, um, or fantastic. I, uh, I really, uh, well, I, I just thought you were really patient with his audience, and um, I, hope, I hope you'll be patient with, with me as well as I ask questions around Wesleyanism and classical Christian history, but... Um, you are a second-generation American on your father's side. He came from Sri Lanka, met your mother in grad school. I think you said he was a, a pharmacology person. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Analytical chemistry, went into uh, research and development for pharmaceuticals. So you, you grew up in a, in a learned household that valued uh, knowledge and diligence and hard work. You were raised Episcopalian. Um, which uh, implies a certain appreciation for high church liturgy and music. Uh, one of the areas that you and I do have overlap, I don't have the musical skill necessarily. I'm not tone deaf, I just sing and I, I play chords on ukulele, but I married an organist, and she and I actually started dating in our, our uh, 
music history course at Boston University School of Theology. So common love of and participation in Christian music. I don't know how much that'll figure into this conversation, but uh, I, I, I just like other people who have a similar appreciation to me. And then um, you and your, uh, you're married with three adult children. Um, I think they're all younger than me. I'm 38. I think all, all three of your sons are in their 20s. Yes. Yes, uh, from twenty, uh, uh, from twenty-three up to twenty-eight. That's fun, man. I it's it's wonderful to watch your kids grow up and become adults, and then uh, give you grandkids. My look forward to it. My grand, my parents love being grandparents. Actually, uh, our youngest son just gave us our first grandchild, a grandson, on Thursday. Hey, congratulations! That's great. That's it's so much fun. You're gonna love it. And then um, you, you're uh, married, three kids, you're a professor, and your primary em- areas of emphasis are, uh, I, I get the sense that you're especially proficient in the Apocrypha, knowledge of the Apocrypha, but then also just generally early church history, and then um, uh, some people may be familiar with the Common English, it's a Common English Bible, right? Yep. Okay, and you're, part, you're one of the main people behind that translation. I was the apocrypha editor. There you go. Okay, so uh, Doctor De Silva. When you knows... work on the apocrypha, you're never one of the main people. But <laughs> is that how it is? To the meetings. Well, I uh, the apocrypha is something that I mean. Uh, with with so many things, I'm uh, I'm not a real strong in it, but I know some. You know, I've taken the time to read through once or twice. I can't speak in a really erudite way about it. Um, but the, the, the primary area where I suspect I'm going to want to really uh, uh, pry into to you and your wisdom, it has to do with, I, I think the underlying presupposition is John Wesley was quite explicit that the Methodist revival was an intentional effort to bring about the ethos, the gifts, the wisdom of the early church and make it real in his contemporary world. And uh, we live in a time right now where where a lot of Methodists are introspecting about who is it that we are? Who are we called to be? Are we still pursuing the original vision that we set out with? Um, John Wesley was, of course, known for saying, I- I'm not afraid of a future where people stop calling themselves Methodist, but I am afraid of a time where people call themselves Methodist, but they've abandoned the doctrine, discipline, and spirit with which they first set out. And so I would say a foundational principle of Methodism, well, really all Protestantism, a lot of people think it's this this liberal project of leaving the shackles behind and doing something new. That's not it. The explicit thing was reclaiming the eternal and the old that was seen in the early church. But we stand at a, pre- a, a place in history where the church is very far removed from the early church, and it's a question of are we really even seeking that at all? And so there are a number of ways in which... Um, that 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 is seen. You know, I listed. I, I've been corresponding with you uh, off and on for a couple of weeks. I, I listed off like seven things off the top of my head last night. I think the one thing that that we were both on board with really talking through was human sexuality. Um, there was a way in which the ancients viewed sexuality before Christians came along. There was a way that Christians uniquely um, had an anthropology around human sexuality. And then um, I'm not as familiar with. Methodist uh, of John Wesley's era approach to a, a human sexual ethos, but we certainly stand at a, a place where, you know, um, 
I, I, I'm not of the mind that sexuality is the only thing that has divided the United Methodist Church, but that has clearly been the touchstone for the division that we see. So um, I, I've been doing a lot of setting up for this. Perhaps you'd be willing to um, uh, uh, spend some time laying out the groundwork for what was the ancient, you know, in the Roman context, understanding of the, the purpose and function of sexuality in the overall human experience, and then how did Christianity enter into that um, cultural setting and either bless and approve of what was going on or uh, do something else? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, it's, it's always difficult to just generalize, but since I must generalize, mm -hmm. um, Greeks and Romans had a fairly um, open view of sexuality. It was to be enjoyed. The experience was a gift from the gods. Um, there were actually, in the first century at least, some moves toward uh, reigning in uh, uh, sexuality from you know, overflowing the bounds of marriage. Augustus was famous for trying to bring back some sort of traditional uh, Roman values in terms of, of exercising restraint and honoring uh, marriage. Uh, through not committing adultery and what have you. Um, uh, nevertheless, by and large, uh, there was a very, very open approach to sexual indulgence. Uh, and it was only the relatively rare high-minded person, uh, the emperor like Augustus or the, the Stoic philosopher like Epictetus or, or Seneca, who... Uh, who urged moderation of the passions and placed a, a higher value on um, self-control than self-indulgence. Christianity inherited a very different view of sexuality uh, uh, from Judaism. Um, and <clears throat> I've been criticized from time to time for being too focused on sexuality in our United Methodist debates about same-sex union and what have you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, I, I reread the Pentateuch recently, and, uh, you know, um, God seemed to be very interested in sexuality from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the New Testament mm -hmm. is full of sexual ethics. So uh, this, this, this is... Uh, a different ethos um, that the early church was steeped in, mm -hmm. um, where what mattered most was honoring God with all of your life, which included honoring God with what you did with the body mm -hmm. uh, and honoring God's boundaries, not transgressing God's boundaries. Of course, the, you know, the, um, um, the assumption it happens to be one that I share, but it's not a shared, you know, assumption shared by everyone, is that um, what one reads in the scriptures of Israel, what one reads in the New Testament reflects a divine perspective on sexuality and not merely a human perspective. And, and that's really the divide, I think, in, in our denomination at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, as you know, it's not just the topic of sexuality, but it's the question of um, how do we know what God blesses and what God wishes to see removed from 
our practice. Right. Um, and, you know, those who find themselves on the traditionalist side of things will will answer, you know, what? we go to scripture first and foremost. Yeah. Um, and, and when we do, we, we see people, the writers of scripture, uh, urging us to, to um, embrace God's boundaries on powerful drives like sexuality, mm-hmm. um, to honor God and to honor our redemption. Um, and and you, you said I was something of a specialist in early Christianity. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I really don't know much of what happens after about 120 AD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but early Christians into the second and third centuries um, exhibited a, a very countercultural restraint when it came to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Again, not a unique restraint because there were always uh, the Stoics and what have you. Right. But but a distinctive restraint, especially in its motivation. Well, um, if I recall correctly, I think it was Pliny the Younger uh, remarked that that Christians were able to achieve um, in their personal restraint. Just the average Christian, their personal righteousness and self control was was beyond that of the philosophers. Uh, I. Is that a quote that rings a bell? Um, it could um, have been. It, Pliny the Younger, in one letter, talks about Christians, and he he does comment on their their um, their taking an oath together mm-hmm. to refrain from certain acts, and one of those is illicit, you know, sexual right. activity. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I'm sure I've misquoted him, that, but I, I'm sure that I didn't invent, invent that quote out of whole cloth. There was there was a Roman non-Christian who acknowledged that. Uh, oh, you know what? It was in Contra Celsus. Um, okay, excellent. So, uh, yeah, Celsus mocked Christians, but then I think he also acknowledged that even though we were idiots, that we still achieved um, a level of personal righteousness uh, yeah. on par with the philosophers. So. Um, anyone who watches that, I, I still might have gotten that wrong, so forgive me. Um, so, so you were fleshing out the the early Christian sexual ethic and how restrained it really was, how it was uh, constrained by uh, Scripture. Um, but you're also saying that um, it 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 was a different ethic. I think I heard you say the early Christian sexual ethic was different from the Jewish sexual sexual ethic that preceded them. Did I hear you say that? Um. Uh, not not terribly different. Okay. Okay. Uh, I didn't think so. Different, differently okay. motivated. Um, and sorry, that was a emergency alert. Yeah, there's a kid that got abducted. So. Oh my goodness. All right. All right. I think I've got it silenced here. Hopefully, my producer will see that and and edit it out. So, um, one one thing I know I need to get you to talk on is um. Early Christians did receive, inherit an, uh, a notion, in the Greek the word is porneia, sexual immorality is how it's generally um, translated. There are many who, um, who uh, want to argue that early Christian notions of sexual immorality probably were the same as Jewish notions. How do we know that that alluded to a whole host of, of sexual behaviors that, that we want to contest today. How do we know in particular that homosexuality would have come under the umbrella of porneia? Um, so as I sit here, I, I, I don't know that it 
needs to because it has its own language in the New Testament. Um, um, this is embarrassing. I'm forgetting the word uh, at the moment. Arsenicoite? Uh, thank you. <laughs> exactly right. Man bends. Um, a word derived from, uh, from two verses in Leviticus mm -hmm. where the two parts, uh, uh, a male and bedding, bedding a male, mm -hmm. uh, appear and, and uh, very clearly in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy is kind of added to this list alongside Porneia mm -hmm. to, to name a more specific kind of sexual activity that Paul did not believe was consonant with the life for which we were redeemed. Right. Okay. Perfectly consonant with the life from which we were redeemed, along with all those other um, practices. Yeah, as you were framing out the um, the classical Roman and Greek context uh, in which the the church uh, emerged, you were you were um, helpfully talking about the passions uh, being unrestrained. But I think a lot of people who listen to us have a notion of human sexuality that is conditioned by our culture, which is um, a notion that that the majority of humans are only only inclined in one direction, male or female. I'm not sure that my reading of, of classical history is is that they did not share that understanding of human sexuality, but that humans in differing circumstances could be, could be inclined in either direction, and that if you were a, a free man, that, that you could um, act on anyone you wanted sexually, and most free men did act both on males and females sexually when they were able to. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, it's, it's hard to quantify. Um, just say like most did, uh, certainly some did. Um, and, and, you know, uh, being sexually attracted to members of both genders is an ancient and a new phenomenon. Um, being bisexual is not a, a, a new thing. Um, and there is some uh, cause to think that the ancients regarded some men to be disposed to desire men and some women to be disposed to desire women. There's a, a an almost comical uh, explanation of the origin of human sexuality in Plato's Symposium uh, to this effect. You you might remember, I, I, I can't remember, is it Aristophanes who comes up with this or Alcibiades? But one of those two characters says, originally uh, human beings were four-armed, four-legged creatures who are always happy because they were always coupling. Okay. They were joined together. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and and he very specifically says some were um, male and female, some were female and female, some were male and male. And they were really? all very happy and the gods were envious, so they split them down the middle. But that seemed to me a very, uh, a very explicit attestation of the idea that one could be by nature, uh, attracted to people of the same sex, mm -hmm. okay, or people of the opposite sex. So, so I want to come back to that because a big part of the debate is um, God made people this way. He, we are born this way, inclined towards one sex or the other. I've partly wanted to contest. I, I think one of the things that our our current cultural moment does is we want to systematize and box things in that are not necessarily 
subject to boxes. So I would say in, in the ancient world, it's been my understanding that they didn't feel the need to box human sexuality in this way and say, well, these are the heterosexuals and these are the homosexuals and these are the bisexuals and these are the ones that are attracted to furries. You know, I, I, this, this is a very, um, I, I think if I understand the, the ancient world, they would look at our culture and go, you guys are boxing something in that's, I mean, it's fun. It's supposed to be free and fluid. Just, just have fun and have sex with who you want to have sex with. Um, so is, is it your mind that they would see things that way or that they would say, no, 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 we, we really are inclined towards one direction or the other, and it's just wrong to restrict people based on what gen general direction they want to go? No, um, there, there's a variety okay. of positions in the ancient world, and, and certainly there are many examples of, of individuals who are aroused by people of both genders. And 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 follow the prompting of that passion. Yes. Okay. Um, clearly, and you know, just to get it out there, one of the one of the institutions in classical Greek in uh, Greece in this regard was uh, pederasty. Okay. Go ahead. And a major. Yeah, argument... a lot of people probably don't know what that is, but I would understand pederasty to be an older male taking a younger male, a much younger male, usually under his wing and initiating him sexually. Uh, having having a a semi permanent relationship, or at least a, a, a long term, yeah, a long term mentoring relationship that included um, uh, the exchange of sexual favors, along with the exchange of um, cultural um, education and and I'm going to use the word grooming, and I know that's just the wrong word to use in the 21st century, but really grooming for success in Greek society. Well, so so in our culture, it does have a certain moral connotation that it, it would not have had in their, I mean, it was just the norm, I think. But I mean, this is something that has been advanced in Western society explicitly. I mean, the one organization I know about is NAMBLA, and I think it stands for National Association of Man-Boy Love. It's been around since the 1980s and 90s. Oh. I, I guess you haven't heard of this. Um, but yeah, pederasty has, has been... Um, something that's that's increasingly advocated for at least in gay male circles in the west but um also all throughout um postmodern thought there has also been uh, an explicit effort to undo laws of consent based around age and um uh, uh, also contemporarily there's um an acronym that's been put together for for adults that are attracted to to children, uh, called maps, uh, which is, uh, minor attracted persons. And so this is something that is entering into the mainstream conversation where they want to normalize. Many people do want to normalize some of the, the pederasty that was seen, uh, in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people would anticipate that on the left and say, Hey, look, just because pederasty is a thing does not mean that all gay stuff is, uh, right. oriented around pederasty, there is such a thing as something that very much resembles uh, uh, heterosexual monogamy. You can have two people of the same sex who love each other every bit as much as a, a straight couple does, who are committed until death, and who are, are, are dedicated to raising in a solid household unit children for the next generation, to which um, many Christians have said, okay, great, that, that passes our rules, go ahead. Um, Indeed. 
what what would we what would one say? I mean, I guess I have you here uh, giving a historic. Yeah, what would a what would an early Christian say to people in the Roman culture who might say, um, "Well, okay, so N.T. Wright, you know that name, right?" Of course. So yeah, of course he he. The one place I've seen him treat this, he says, in the ancient world, there was such a thing as two men who were bonded for life that very much resembled that, and that also was categorically rejected by early Christians. Would you agree with that that assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what I where I was going with the pederasty thing. Oh, please. Was yes. Not the only um, uh, model for same sex relations in the first century Roman uh, Empire. Um, and so the the argument that many make that biblical uh, New Testament mm-hmm. proscriptions uh, of same sex practice mm-hmm. um, have pederasty in mind and not the kind of equal relationship that you were describing. Yeah, putting that I in my hick language, there are some people who say gay stuff is only. Uh, talked bad about in the New Testament because the only model they had of that was uh, a a richer, wealthier, more powerful person taking advantage of a lower person. So the sin is not uh, male plus male. The sin is powerful versus powerless or taking advantage of powerless. It's a power dynamic. Um, Is that pretty much what you're saying here? Uh, So, yes, where I'm going is while that did happen and was highly problematic, it was not the the whole picture mm-hmm. and i think it's highly significant that when new testament authors talk about um uh, same-sex practice they don't use words like pederasty which or uh, you know it, it comes from a greek word pied erastes a lover of a child of a boy mm, boy lover yeah uh, they, and they instead uh, paul instead invents a new word derived from leviticus or long behind uh greek uh, uh, pederasty mm. to to uh, a more kind of categorical proscription of this kind of practice. And just to follow up on that, we all know Romans 1, one of the so-called clobber texts, yeah. which, and I do regret the fact that it might ever have been used as a clobber text as opposed to a liberation text. But what is trying to liberate us from is the rule of disordered passions yeah and... i i i'm i'm of and we may or may not get to this but uh one of the things i love about john wesley is he really didn't mince words a lot and he wasn't afraid to get uh to hurt people's feelings the way a lot of american pastors are and uh when people call them clobber passages i kind of lean into that because uh you know i've personally come to the scriptures and felt clobbered many times and I appreciate that. You know, my my understanding is that I was born in sin, and I need to get it clobbered out of me. And I'm appreciative for the scriptures doing that to me. But um, I, I just recently had a conversation with uh, Drew Enns, who was in the Virginia Annual Conference, performed a gay wedding ceremony, was brought up on charges. And the thing that I focused on with him, and I wonder what you would say about, is that the fundamental theological div- dividing point between left and right in the UMC. Uh, where there can be no overlap or cooperation is the doctrine of the fall. Either we are born broken and in need of a death and rebirth, or we're born as God wants us. So you and I, I think, would both say, yes, at least some humans are born... Well, I would say the vast majority of humans are born sexually broken, some in the way that leads to have sex with the same sex, but uh, a, 
a lot of people, I mean, I think a lot of straight people are sexually depraved and in need of correction. Um, so it's, it's not a theological problem for me that people are born this way because Jesus says you must be born again uh, mm. to all of us, whether or not we're born sexually uh, broken. So, so as, as we're looking at the present moment, there are liberals in the United Methodist Church who would say God gives birth to us inclined in the, the directions that glorify Him, and, and we need to bless that. And you'd have conservatives saying we're all born messed up, including sexually, and in need of correction, self-denial, and for some of us, lifelong celibacy. And that is something our God can ask of us because of the supreme blessings that he offers. So so you're nodding your head. I don't, I don't see any disagreement there. Do you think there's additional nuance that's needed or a corrective on that simplistic spin that I've provided here? It, it wasn't simplistic. Just, just to go back, because I don't know, you just, you just, you kind of go. I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I do. Yeah. Bring us back. You're please. That's very and I helpful. just, I just wanted to sit in, in, in Romans one, just for a little bit longer, please to say that as, as Paul describes the, the state of the disordered state of humanity, crying mm -hmm. for redemption, uh, he focuses in on same sex practice, not between unequal persons, just between any persons. Yeah, he doesn't address gender. power at all in that, does he? He doesn't. Uh, and he regards that alongside a host of others, let it be said, mm -hmm. uh, a host of other texts there, uh, sorry, uh, 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 signs of, of our disordered lives. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember uh, all of them, but um, you know how people always say, oh, why do you single out this sin? Uh -huh. And I think they're right. We shouldn't single out this sin they're all a sign sure. of our disordered lives that that God is 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 calling back into order. But the point is, Paul doesn't set limits the way those pushing a progressive agenda want to set limits on on his on his uh, prescriptions. To your to the point that you led us to, mm -hmm. yeah, um, I I I cannot uh, embrace the idea that we are. That the way we are born reflects the way God wants us to be. Sure. Um, and, and I could get in trouble for making this comparison. Um, but, you know, when, when people say, I was born this way, therefore the way I am is okay in God's sight. I, I should act on this. This is how God wants me to be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about how many people are born born into this world in in broken bodies yeah um yeah. i think of a dear sister in the faith in my congregation who was born with spinal bifida oh that's awful yes wrestled i mean just so many operations so much pain yeah um and and you know i i would never say to to this sister you know you were born this way because God created you this way. Sure, yeah. Rather, you were born this way because we all share in in nature gone awry mm -hmm. because of our collective rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. And this is and 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 you just frankly got dealt a far worse hand than I did mm -hmm. in regards to um, uh, how we start our life in the flesh and and. Our response to her is to you know, do all we can to support, uh, to you know, just emotionally 
prayerfully, but also in terms of of helping get back to the hospital and what have you, and all those things to support and, and love her in the midst of her brokenness. Yeah, and and, and I would simply say I, I think. This is what we were called to do in regard to those who are born with a same-sex orientation, to love them so thoroughly in Christian community that they have full lives because of our relationships with one another, mm-hmm. while they also um, live a life of wholesale dedication to God, yeah. using their bodies to glorify God, not for gratification. And it wasn't a great hand to be dealt. Well, it's just when when our own Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, who was fully human and led a fully human life, you know, as if, if you're looking at the life of Jesus, 33, died at the, the age of 33, never had sex, never got married. If you're looking at him and going, oh, that poor guy, he never got mm. laid. Then you're really looking at it wrong. You know, he he is sitting at the right hand of God. We need not pity that guy at all. You know, and yes, he went to the cross, and and that was painful and awful. But he 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 has the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, and and we who are in Christ Jesus, so much of the New Testament is is priming us, preparing us, exhorting us to live lives of suffering and self-denial, of weeping and and sorrow for the sake of that future reward, where the re- reward will far outweigh any suffering of this life. And that's why we can we can elevate not just Christ Jesus, but but the thousands of those who have been martyred for his namesake or gone through lives of gouging out their eyes or cutting off their hand to, to prevent them from sinning and, and uh, uh, being... Metaphorically speaking. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, except for origin, of course. But the, uh, the, the, I was quoting or paraphrasing Jesus who right. says, if your of eye course, causes you course. to sin or your hand causes you to sin, just cut them off because it's better to enter into the kingdom maimed than to go to hell with your body intact. And so spiritually or um psychologically for all of our listeners that's metaphorical yes yes legal disclaimer that's metaphorical dr de silva is worried about people cutting off their hands so listen to dr de silva don't cut your hand off but psychologically uh, spiritually if there is something that you were born with that is explicitly a sin and does not bring you closer to god actually separates you from god as sin does then the only scriptural exhortation is to remove that part of yourself. That that's how I've always interpreted. That I always thought Which that Jesus is, is explicitly perfectly, is, yeah. is perfectly uh, sound. And you know, maybe uh, something that needs to be said is you know, um, celibacy, um, uh, keeping yourself for God, uh, used to actually elevate people's status mm-hmm. in Christian community. Mm-hmm. Rather than evoke pity, yeah, uh, and, and uh, one one huge piece in the the Methodist conversation that it seems to me really hasn't been carefully enough examined is just how how much sexual activity has risen to a point of prominence in our culture and on our cultural view of a full life and a happy life 
that, that it is now almost inconceivable to, to think of a good life being a life without intercourse. Right. Whereas in, uh, in the first and second centuries, um, it was perfectly conceivable to, um, to, to be so fulfilled by the, um, uh, by the intimacy with God and by the availability of oneself for God, thinking about Paul in First uh, Corinthians seven, right? Um, and and uh, as Christianity developed, you know, uh, those who were ascetic for mm-hmm. for for Christ were the most honored members. Yeah, of so the let's not the most pitied members. Right? Of the yeah, I was arguing about this with my buddy Dale. There is a. I would say that. Well, I think most people would acknowledge that modern American Christianity is very much um, conditioned by our cultural norms and, and desires, and not always conditioned by explicit Scripture. I would say in the New Testament, because of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, but also because of Jesus saying there are eunuchs mm-hmm. who are made mm-hmm. eunuchs, but there are also eunuchs for the kingdom, and it really is better to be that, um, it seems to me that New Testament language is ex- explicitly preferential of those who just do not act on their sexual urges at all, whose whose sexual urges are sublimated under a love of of the divine. That that is actually far preferable, you know. And and Paul explains it logistically, you know. When you have a spouse, that's the only way that you can have sex in a way that doesn't upset the Lord. When you have a spouse, your your loyalties are divided, and you are not going to be able to glorify God fully because your concerns will be with your spouse, as, as they should be. So, so it seems to me that the, the New Testament sexual ethic is it's really best not to be a sexual person, but if you have to be to keep you from burning with passion, as he says in 1 Corinthians, marriage is given as a concession to those of you who just can't, can't keep it contained. Um, so it's, it's, almost, it's, it's always seemed to me in reading that that those who have to have sex, you're, you've got one little box in the world of sexuality. You can use sexuality in this little box uh, with a person of the opposite sex and a lifelong covenant, um, and really that is a secondary status. You are a second-class citizen in contrast to those who don't need that, who, um, who are, are uh, eunuchs for the kingdom. Do you think that I've taken it to an extreme place that the text doesn't really volunteer, or do you think that that, that can be readily... Uh, Confirmed. Um, I, so I, I, I guess I want to backpedal from anyone being second class in the kingdom of God. Okay. And just say, um, maybe it's enough to say that uh, Paul says he thinks it's better to be fully available to do God's work mm-hmm. and to give yourself to whatever God has for you to do in front of you mm-hmm. than to be dividing your um, your devotion between a spouse and God. For sure, for sure. Could, um, could, and, and I'm, I know a little bit, you know, I got Wesley and the people called Methodists with Heisenrader. I read this in seminary. I know some early Methodist history, but I haven't done a whole lot of reading on, uh, the, the topic of sexuality within early Methodism. I don't even know if that was much of a conversation, um, other than, you know, Here's the Christian tradition, and the things that we've said are wrong. Don't do it. You know, um, I know that pretty much it. That's all I've read in Wesley's sermons. You know, he and he doesn't dwell on it um, nearly so much as his modern descendants 
<laughs> do. But well, he's very clear yeah. on what's out of bounds as well. So so his modern descendants, you know, let's be clear That's about us. this. I, do you self-identify as conservative traditionalist like me, or would you use different labels for yourself? I can't avoid being labeled a traditionalist in okay. the United Methodist Church. So what I think most traditionalists would say is, we really don't want to talk about sex this much. The only reason we are is because people are wanting to change sexual norms as preached for 2,000 years in the church. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, but I, I, I also want to say I, I do consider myself a compassionate traditionalist, mm -hmm. and I do think that that something that may have emerged from this conversation within our denomination mm -hmm. that that wasn't present say 40 years ago was uh, or is um, the 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 need to love our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and and almost the 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 call of god to go the extra mile to surround them with love and fellowship and and uh, support um, as opposed to mm -hmm. uh, what might have been a very typical response to people of homosexual orientation 40 years ago or or, or still in some places mm -hmm. basically to treat them like lepers mm. which is utterly wrong yeah of course uh, and 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 I'm convinced more and more that that it, it is the traditionalists failing, you know, when we were almost all traditionalists, the traditionalists failing mm -hmm. in that regard that has brought us to this point where the pendulum has swung so far because we just did a poor job for decades um, giving the, the kind of embrace that as our Christian brothers and sisters, they deserved. Mm -hmm. Apart from the cultural agenda, which has now completely infiltrated the denomination, it's really become a matter of justice and gay rights, mm -hmm. so that what, what has happened in the society now must be mirrored in the church if we're to keep pace with what is just, as opposed to what was loving and what perhaps we ought to have been doing better all along. I sense hesitation in your face. Yes. Well, and so it comes from this book that I, I read several years ago now by, uh, I forget his first name, the last name was Krieger, the patient ferment of the early church. It's, yeah. it's made a big splash inside. Larry, in I think. I couldn't tell you now. I feel bad. But one of the things that he made very clear to me was the early church, the first 300 years before... Uh, uh, um, Constantine, yeah. Yeah, well, the the council at uh, Nicaea was that they were not evangelically concerned. They, they, the way that they understood Jesus' great commission was that he gave that to the 11, and then later the 12, Matthias. They were the ones uniquely responsible for spreading the good word, and that the rest of the church was responsible only for being holy. And hmm. so the institution of the early church was not to bring everybody in, but to sanctify those whom the Lord called in. And wow. so they actually had deacons who served as bouncers at the door who would not allow people in who were uninitiated. And you could only come in as an initiate when you had a sponsor. And then they had a three-year process where they would lead you in to the gradual mysteries, after which 
um, well, some of the mysteries. And after that, you were initiated by being baptized nude uh, in the assembly, and then you were further given the mysteries after that. And then if at any point you engaged in sin after that, it was expected that you confess it and repent, and if you continued to participate in unrepentant sin, you could you were excommunicated. You could not participate in the sacrament with other believers. You were eventually extricated from the church, and they would not have the sacrament unless everybody in the assembly was at perfect peace with one another, having mm. repented of their sins. And what you saw in that context was they mm. went from an obscure cult off to the side to becoming 10% of the Roman population mm-hmm. within 300, 250 <clears throat> years. And so to our mind today, we would say that is a backward, draconian notion of what, how are they trying to build the church that way, and yet the church grew leaps and bounds because the way I would understand it is in, deep in the human heart, there is a yearning for holiness. There's mm-hmm. a God-shaped hole that nothing else can fill other than the holiness is known through Christ Jesus. And so the, the proper posture of the church towards sin and the people who willingly make room for sin in them is absolute intolerance. We cannot have this in the assembled body of believers. It's not that this one group of people is particularly icky and we, we're fine for right. all the other sinners to come in except for, right. the, you know, that's where I would have a problem with the conservatives <clears throat> of, say, 20, 30 years ago is they were just fine with divorce. They were just fine with cheating on your wife if you did it the right way. They were just fine with being dishonest in your business practice, <clears throat> but they weren't fine with those gays. And in that case, I think the word homophobia makes sense. Yeah, they are uniquely singling out one family, of sin, and that's that's a problem. But I think the right posture of the church and what Methodism came close to was an absolute intolerance of sin. And the only people who belonged in, you know, Methodism wasn't the church, it was a parachurch movement that was exclusive. It was like a club. And you could only be admitted when you were in good standing with the class, uh, your class meeting and the, the Methodist society. Otherwise, they would exclude you. And one of the things that I've been advancing, and it's usually met with silence, is unless Methodism reclaims an exclusive character where we kick people out who are in unrepentant sin, unless we reclaim that, we will be doomed to cycles of um, zeal and excitement followed by getting watered down because we have not maintained the scriptural holiness that is, that is, that is clearly painted for us in the New Testament. So, um, so as I, I hold that up against what you just said, I, I don't look at the way we treated gay people as a failure. I look at the way that we treated um, divorce. Other sinners as a failure. Exactly. I think yeah. that we okay. should have. Okay. okay. So, so which way do you <clears throat> think the GMC should go as they try and reclaim the Methodist heritage? Which way do you think that um, if if Jesus stepped in directly and well, no, that's a silly scenario. But if the United Methodist Church were that would be to, the second coming and our problems would be over. Exactly. Yes. So how do you, how do you think the church, whether or not it's Methodist, but especially Methodist churches, as we meet the world where it is today? Do you think that we can reclaim this this ascetic self-denial that is centered on God's holy word as the only authority for for what sin is and or do you think that 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 dream is really gone and that there needs to be some kind of new litmus test or hermeneutic for navigating the church today? Um I suppose that I have a lot of faith in Wesley's original vision and and the practices he put in place, the structures he put in place to advance that vision. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that 
frankly, I, I really like about the GMC um, is uh, the commitment of its leadership to seeing those structures take root as the GMC kind of, it's already launched, but I mean, really launches, gets yes. off the ground. Right. And, and maybe those structures um, um, mediate in such a way that we don't need to choose between greater love and support or the bouncers at the door. Right. <laughs> but, but maybe if those, if those structures are there and we all honestly come with, um, with a desire, as Wesley put it, to flee from the wrath to come. Right. If we all come with that desire, if we, and I mean, we could, we could go off track on all sorts of things. I mean, the, the idea of, of a divine judgment mm -hmm. has, has really lost ground in a lot of Protestantism. Um, and, it never ought to have done so because it's so prominent throughout the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Yeah. How we live matters. Yeah. And we were saved to live a certain way with a view to that day and yeah. with a view to a verdict on that day. Uh, anyway. It's weird. We well, let me just say real quick. It's weird the way that leftism mimics the faith but inverts it. So, so many liberals would say, there is no final judgment, or every day is judge, or something like that. But I, I, the way you just said it, I forget. But the way I say it is very similar. There are consequences to how we live. You know, there there is no consequenceless eternity. Um, but the left will look at modern day racial justice and cancellation and say, well, there are consequences. Um, even if you and I would say, hey, that was an unnecessary cancellation. That was way over the line. Uh, mm. They would say there are consequences, but they meanwhile would look at our God and the way he said he would judge and say, well, I don't agree with that judgment. He, that's way over the line. I don't agree in his judge. And then you and I uh, would probably say, you don't have to agree with it. He's God. You're going to be subject to it whether you like it or not. So you might as well sober up and talk about it and get ready. Um, so, so you had a so, different direction so you wanted all, to all go. All that to say, let me, let, but make sure to get this, yeah. this out because I think this is important. Um, um the early church um, was full of people who were being directly commissioned by the leaders of the church, the writers of our epistles, mm -hmm. to mess with each other's lives, to mess with each other's stuff. Yeah. Uh, if a brother or sister is overtaken in some trespass, you who have the spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's a command. Right. And, and that's Galatians 6, 1. Uh, or, or, or so. And then James and Jude both give very similar directions toward the ends of their uh, epistles. Or Jesus uh, himself directly at the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 18, exactly yes. right. And, and, and so, you know, uh, Wesley took that very seriously. Watching said, over one not, another in love, yeah. Yes, and if we're going to advance in holiness, if we're if we're really going to flee the wrath of co to come, it means we need to move into the holiness that God has laid out for us in Scripture, and we will we will talk about our failures. Yeah, we will talk about the areas in which we are struggling to live out scriptural holiness, and we will pray for one another, mm -hmm. and we'll meet again next week. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. see how things are going. Has God given you victory? Mm -hmm. And and that's that's the spirit of it. 
mm-hmm. because we're 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 praying with each other and holding one another up and 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 waiting for God to give you the victory right in this area and and that's something the class meetings the band meetings mm-hmm. or any sort of 21st century equivalent of that is is something that the GMC is very um hot on seeing replicated right yeah the churches that join it because that's something that the UMC just never bothered with and let's face it no respectable mainline denomination bothers with but that was at the heart of yeah. our um uh, of the Methodist reform movement that breathed new life into the Anglican church yeah the um so the way so Kevin Watson has been the main scholar yes, that I've read exactly. as he's chronicled this and he the way I understand it was that the decline of the class meeting coincided with the rise of the Sunday school movement, but also Methodism choosing not to kick people out anymore. Um, and these two things resulted in a, a much lower, more optional standard for the Methodist faith, which it never came back from. Mm. And I can't speak as much to other mm. denominations about how exclusive they were before and how, how formally they would kick people out. But uh, again, you know, as we talk about reclaiming the, the class meeting or the band meeting, unless it, it also maintains its, you know, if you've ever read the general rules, at the very end it says anyone who will not continue in these general rules and habitually does without them, uh, we've been cleansed of our souls, they're gone, they're, they're out, you know. And so until you have that, you can come in and have koinonia, you can be in fellowship, we can watch over one another in love, we can invasively interfere in each other's lives in the right spirit, or you can go. You know, but to to create this huge class in the middle where you don't have to be accountable, you can show up on your own terms, you can do things in your own way, you don't have to answer to anybody, you don't have to confess your sins, you don't have to repent. When you create, when that becomes the normal class, the majority class, the normative class in a yeah. in a Christian body, what right do you have to expect that any true disciples are going to want to be there, uh, or to expect the the standard of discipleship to be very high at all? So I wonder. Would you agree that the early Methodist revival movement did generally produce disciples of a much higher caliber and quality than what is normally seen today in Methodist churches? Yeah, so to be honest, I don't know any of those people, but I can look back upon their structures Mm -hmm. and I see everything in place that promised to make such people. Yeah. And I mean, my study of the the New Testament uh, and, and it's its instructions to form uh, the, the culture of these small Christian groups that met together in homes mm-hmm. um, uh, aligns so well with uh, with with Wesley's um, structures uh, that I would have every expectation for it to have succeeded. And you know, uh, I think on this point, I, I would agree. Uh, why are we here in a church at all mm-hmm. if we do not? If we do not share a common purpose, what is the point of our being here? If you, any you, uh, any individual, if 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 you are here, is this your purpose? Mm-hmm. Because this group has a purpose, and that purpose is to experience the full salvation that God has for us. I love. I've become so much more Wesleyan mm-hmm. the last decade, thanks to the United Methodist debacle, but. <laughs> you know, to be saved fully 
not merely from the penalty of sin, but mm -hmm. from the power of sin. Right. That's yeah. why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. If that's if that doesn't align with your purpose, there are other congregations that will nurture you in a manner that is more in keeping with your spiritual journey. There, you see, I've... I've You're so kind <laughs> in how you phrase it. <laughs> I've, I've adapted it for the 21st century. Very good, Dr. De Silva. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think this is the conversation that the, that the Methodist movement needs to be having. Um, so I'm glad to have had it with you. And, and I wonder, you know, I remember when the GMC leaders were first doing the WCA thing and they were saying... Everybody in the new denomination is going to have to be in a class meeting. And I was going, wow, they're really... And then they stopped talking about that, you know? Um, no. It's really hard to insist on a high standard when you realize how many people that's going to... They're going to leave, you know? And and something to be said for John Wesley is he would come in to review a society in a given area, and he would kick out a quarter, a third of the people. He just was not concerned with growth. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people in leadership wanting to believe that we can grow and prioritize holiness, and these two um, can work together. Um, and I, I think the witness of the early church and early Methodism is it really is just only holiness. This is the only concern, and if, the, if it grows, great, but if it doesn't, uh, mm. then so be it, you know. Um, and I think that indifference to growth... Um, is what's needed for integrity, but uh, I realize I'm kind of a lone voice saying that. No, no, of course you are a lone voice, but it also makes perfect sense. I mean, what 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 God is after is quality, not right. quantity. Yeah. What what the apostles were after was quality. Are you moving into the fullness of that life for right. which Christ redeemed you? Yes. But so so I mean, you're right. I've heard less of that conversation as well within. GMC circles, but what I would say going forward is that anyone who moves into the GMC and GMC clergy in particular mm -hmm. really needs to be, uh, what's the word, intentional mm -hmm. about discipling the congregation around them and what it means right. to, to, to belong to a Methodist church right, and, and to be willing to see a number of folks reaffiliate with the UMC or go to any other uh, congregation because Wesley's experiment bears repeating exactly. in the 21st century in a, yeah. in a concentrated way. G.K. Chesterton said, um, it isn't that Christianity was tried and found wanting, it's that Christianity was found demanding and rarely tried. And I think that uh, yeah, the same goes great. for Methodism. I don't think we ever saw a failure of Methodism anywhere that it spread in its authentic original form. It was just when we watered it down that it stopped being effective and compelling. Um, the reason I, I thought it would be really good to talk with you in particular, Dr. De Silva, is because I think there is a stereotype that persists despite all the exceptions to the rule that it's only unlearned hicks that occupy a traditionalist perspective with respect to human sexuality and holiness more generally. And I think it's really important for people to have a portrait of someone who has uh, read the autographs of the original biblical texts uh, or... or uh, uh, Never did that, actually, but yeah, I have read it in Greek. <laughs> well, yeah, autograph, near... <laughs> autograph wasn't the right word, but to be able to, to, to comprehend in the original languages yeah. the biblical books or to, to the, the high-minded stuff around... Um, you're a seminary professor, 
and the fact that you can not just willingly but but unembarrassedly say, yeah, the eternal Christian sexual ethic is true, the eternal Christian faith is true, does not need to be amended for the modern era. I just think it's really important for people to get a picture of, of, of you and others like you, so I, I've, I have reached out. I spoke with one professor at Asbury during the revival there, and that was a fun interview, and then I've reached out to uh, I, Stephen um, Powers was oh. his last name. Had a good interview with him, and then I've reached out recently to Kenda Creasy-Dean um, yeah. about, um, I, I want to talk with her about the topic of um, alien ideologies coming and using Christianity as a host. She talks about moralistic therapeutic deism. I want to see why liberalism doesn't apply to the same theory. So she's graciously agreed to talk about a future conversation, but I think it's important to promote the work that you guys are doing. Um, and and I'll either, I, I think it's good for people to get a portrait of who you are and how you think through things. And then I, I want to acknowledge you've recently published a book that can help people have a much more deep understanding of the biblical text. Could you tell me briefly about that book? And I, I'd like to promote it. Well, well, thank you. Um, most recently, um, the second edition of my Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, uh, Unlocking New Testament Culture, came out with uh, InterVarsity Press. That was 2022. Um, and within that, perhaps the most important chapters are three through six. Three and four really get into the relationship between uh, God's gracious redemption and the necessity of our full-bodied response um, uh, in a way that refuses to separate um, grace from discipleship, um, justification from sanctification. And then the, the ethos of kinship that the earliest apostles sought to nurture in the, in the church is something we really need to work to recover. Um, so we get past the polite but still rather private relations that we have with one another. Right. Um, and then I, I did a little thing, a very little book for Seedbed called One Another, the New Testament Prescription for Transformation, uh, which is really just meant for a sm small group mm -hmm. study, like eight weeks. There's also a DVD and, and the purpose there is to bring together all the New Testament material on um, how we are called to relate to one another and prioritize one another and really building up to the point where we have the kind of trust and love that we can watch over one another and we can restore one another in love and, and so really move into um, the kind of interaction that would make Wesley's structures healthful. I think that's uh, a wrong. that's a real so if you're viewing this and you want to have a meaningful uh, experience with a small group perhaps in your church where you're pursuing the 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 authentic intimacy of the church as Christ designated it seems like it'd be really smart to go to seedbed and 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 order a few copies of this say the name of it again one another one we'll another that's easy yeah so oh, the and subtitle then, is horribly long and. That's my fault. I just can't come up with catchy subtitles. Well, if you remember that, the internet is a thing, and just type seedbed, one word, and then one another. It'll take you there. And Dr. De Silva has done several, uh, three or four segments on the 7-Minute Seminary 
yeah. for a seed bed yeah. as well that are very quality. So if, if you've got more energy for this when it's over, just in the YouTube field, type in Seedbed De Silva. But this other, say the first book, the 2022 InterVarsity, what was the title um, again? It's, it's, um, it, it's Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, Unlocking New Testament Culture. Cool. And, and it really is an attempt to, to get past our own cultural lenses mm -hmm. and presuppositions. Yeah. So we could hear um, parts of the New Testament as first century persons would have heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to quote Yoda, so you uh, must unlearn what you have learned. Thank you. And exactly. Right. Yeah, we, we have to take off our own cultural presuppositions yeah. in order to reapproach um, Christianity in a, in a helpful way. I'm so grateful for people like you who have the energy to do that, because hicks like me just get up at the pulpit and say, y'all, in the past, it was different, you know, and uh, that's that's <laughs> not really the same thing. Um, I, as we're closing this up, I'm, I'm just curious about you personally. You are an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Um, I don't know a whole lot. There are two annual conferences up in Ohio. Are you an elder in, in one of those conferences? I'm actually ordained in the Florida conference. Okay, so I've I've been following Florida a little bit. Um, Tom Berlin's your new bishop. He seems to be all right. You just had 55 churches disaffiliated yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, are you leading a, a church while you're down there? I'm only serving as director of traditional music and organist at a congregation, okay. a congregation that did vote to disaffiliate. So is your uh, ordination also going to be transferred to the GMC or do you know what you're doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm caught and my druthers are to remain with the UMC through the next general conference. And as the spiritual goes, see what the end will be. Sure. But there are also some interesting restrictions that are coming out. Right. Uh, for example, it's questionable whether as a, an ordained UMC elder, I should be serving on the staff of a disaffiliating church. Oh, sure. In my conference, they've been very clear that that is not to be allowed at all. Yeah, so so my, my departure might be hastened. Yeah. Depending on Bishop Berlin and his... Oh. I th his openness. I thought you were saying your departure from your church might be hastened, but you're oh, no, saying no, no, your departure no. from your I, conference. I, I love my church. I yeah. love my ministry. Uh, um, I, yeah. If if conscience matters at all in the UMC, my conscience says, don't leave this congregation. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're blessed to have you. If you're so many, so many clergy are more attached to their paycheck and status than they are to their ministry, and and uh, it's great that uh, that your conscience figures in more highly. Don't, don't 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 make me to be more noble than I am. I do get paid by this church. Yes, of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. It's just been it's been um, in a, in our own conference. We had a a, a, a clergy who uh, was affiliated with the church that disaffiliated and she wanted to maintain a, a lower pastoral role under a uh, head pastor and uh, that she was told no. She had to create her own individual ministry option that was considered, um, it's not interfaith. There's a status within the United Methodist Church where you can serve in non-United Methodist context. Appointments and, to a valid extension ministry? Extension ministry, yeah, that was it. That's that's so. my appointments to Ashland Seminary. Okay, yeah. So there's Been certain... my appointment for 28 years. Yeah. So as long as they're amenable to that being a GMC church, an extension ministry in a GMC church, it doesn't have to be uh, a big bad thing, but it 
it can be something that that ends in broken relationship, which would be unfortunate. We'll see. But we'll, see. well your hopeful. church is blessed to have you, and especially in music ministry, I I find so often music ministry is divorced from early church um, values, and and that's at least something you've got to contend with and bring with you as your uh, your choir director and an organist, right? Yeah, yeah. That's fun, man. I have been since I was eighteen. Wow, only ten years ago. <laughs> Doctor De Silva, six years ago, <laughs> <laughs> you've aged well, brother. Well, listen, uh, we're, we talked about an hour. This is about an hour. Is is there anything else? You know, who who knows what's going to come of this conversation? How many people are going to listen? What the reflections are going to be? Is there anything else that you think is just really essential? Hey. We got this one time with Dr. De Silva. Is there anything that you want to bless people with or tell them, hey, you, you, we should really be praying on this as Methodists? Yeah, so I, I don't know that this is blessing or anything, but I think it's time for people on both sides of this divide and this argument to start remembering um, the virtue of self-control the virtue of um, speaking the truth in love, mm, yeah, and and just pulling back the throttle on animosity and anger, and there's plenty of cause for that, but that's not our calling. So, and I and I say this, you know, no matter who. To whom I'm speaking, be it UMC, GMC, traditionalist, progressive, let's just pull back the throttle <laughs> on on our speech and our writing, and um, and show a bit more of the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, as we engage points of heated disagreement. Well, and that's something that you've personally modeled online. Um, Most uh, of the time. Hey, you've been great. I haven't Not seen. Always. I haven't seen you break at all. Uh, maybe it's happened, but the United Methodist clergy page is a cesspool, a lot of nasty stuff, and you routinely wade into those waters with uh, genteel and gracious reflections that I think are are excellent examples of an attempt to turn down. The, well, and I think you have a, 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 a effectively turned down the temperature on a number of conversations. So uh, to that end, I hope you're fruitful, brother. It's a, it's a worthy goal. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. De Silva, let's let's go ahead and uh, call a close to this time. Um, uh, let's stay on the line, and I, I wanted to have you pray over us and our our uh, movement. Um, but for anyone who joined me on on this episode of Plain Spoken, just want to say thank you. I hope you've been blessed by this. I do hope you seriously consider uh, uh, checking out buying some of Dr. De Silva's books and just make him one of the voices that you uh, consider trustworthy as you navigate um, these issues of of division and integrity in our current era. So God bless you folks. We'll see you next time.